Welcome everybody to today's conversation with Anajit Serene as part of our ongoing Around the Curve um, Brandywine Global Content. I'm Katie Klansmith with Brandywine Global. Anajit is a portfolio manager here in our global fixed income team and has a tremendous experience in currency markets, which is good because today we will focus along with a lot of other people on the current situation with the US dollar and what we think might happen with the greenback going forward. So energy, just to get us started, we all love to hate the US dollar. Um, we have massive fiscal deficits, a big accumulated debt, a trade imbalance, and yet the dollar has had a really strong period um, over really the last 10 years. Just set some context here. What's going on with the US dollar? Sure, sure, Katie. Uh, I think those issues around the fiscal deficit and trade deficit, I think are, are often a distraction from what are the more important underlying drivers of the currency. Um, the dollar long-term is primarily a function of relative growth trends. Uh, and we've had an experience of the last 10 years that's been particularly constructive for the U.S. versus the rest of the world. On the U.S. side, there have been two drivers uh, that I've that contribute toward this sense of U.S. exceptionalism. The first and the most prominent one is its leadership in technology. Right? The demand for technology has been robust over the last decade. It's the, if you think about what are the major global companies that provide those technology uh, products, well, they're predominantly denominated in the United States. Um, uh, and so I think that's been a very strong underpinning uh, of the U.S. growth app performance story. The second piece has been the renaissance on the energy side. Right? The rise of shale gas and oil uh, has, has led to a remarkable turnaround in the U.S. energy balance. A decade ago, or maybe as early as sort of 2008, the U.S. was running an energy deficit on the order of 1% of GDP. Today, it's in slight surplus. That's a pretty big change. Um, so that's that's true on the U.S. side. And, and it's worth keeping in mind, again, despite the trade and fiscal deficits on the other side, uh, you've had all kinds of headwinds. Uh, Europe has struggled with the sovereign, uh, its sovereign crisis right, for much of the last decade. And if you think about what was trend growth in, in uh, Europe in the, in the late 2000s, uh, it was well north of 2% uh, of the 10 years uh, since, right? It's been less than 1%. That's a 50% reduction in the trend growth rate. And China, by the way, has, has seen something similar, right? Growth rates have gone from the high single digits or low double digits to something quite a bit lower. So that shift in relative growth is the, has been the primary driver of dollar strength. Energy, you mentioned relative growth is a big driver for currencies. Uh, how synchronized are the big economies right now? Yeah, I think the perspective on this is that the COVID shock created a lot of synchronization, right? Everything collapsed together, big policy responses, everything surged together. So, so the cycles have been pretty synchronized. Um, and then, of course, following the synchronization of the cycle was a synchronization of policies, right? Policies really have tightened across the board uh, this past year and a half. So it's been more of a synchronized story than, than desynchronized, but that started to change last year, right? Again, that started with the Russia-Ukraine war having this particular shock to Europe, uh, the COVID property issues in China having a particular impact there. So we started to see, I think, a shift there, and I think that's going to continue this year, right? It's going to continue the other way, where the energy story is getting better in Europe and 
Um, in China, the growth story will get better with the COVID restrictions easing. Uh, and meanwhile, the US, the US has tightened policy the most. They started earlier than most. And I think the, the lagged consequences of that will be felt for the better part of 2023. Europe's going to have a, a different pattern this year. Most of it slowing last year was because of a real income shock related to energy prices. That's going to be uh, better, certainly in the first half of this year. So I think the cycles have become a little bit more desynchronized. I think that's going to lead to some desynchronization in monetary policies as well, and which is why you've already started to see some interest rate convergence. Right, The difference in yield between the United States and European bond markets is much narrower today than it was uh, six months ago. If you look at the difference in the two-year yield spread, uh, it was north of 200 basis points uh, back in the, in the fall, that spread has narrowed closer to 100 basis points at this stage, and I think quite possibly is going to zero at some point uh, later this year. So, so I think I think we are entering a more desynchronized period, uh, and I think that's where these relative stories do take center stage. There's a lot in there, energy that I look forward to unpacking. But just a little historical context first: relative growth, maybe different drivers during different periods of time. But how does this period of dollar strength stack up to what's happened over the last several decades? Sure, it's a, it's a good question. Um, you know, we've had three dollar bull markets since the U.S. went off the gold standard in 1974. Uh, there was the bull market in the early 1980s. Uh, we had another bull market in the late 1990s, and this most recent bull market, which started in 2011. The other two bull markets uh, were shorter in nature. They lasted about six to seven years. Uh, this one's been longer. It's been, you know, you know, 11 years uh, in its making. Um, uh, so in time, it's been a much longer bull market, but in magnitude, it's actually quite comparable. Uh, the 1980s bull market, the U.S. dollar and broad, real effective term. So, so its average performance against its trading partners was up around 45%. Uh, the 90s bull market was less than that. It was closer to 33%. Uh, this bull market's been, been around about 43% trough to peak. So duration-wise, somewhat longer, but magnitude-wise, quite comparable. The dollar, the last couple of years until recently, just saw a tremendous surge already from overvalued levels. What's been happening more recently in the U.S.? Yeah, so again, it, there's, there's issues on both sides, right? On, on the U.S. side, you, you had a much larger fiscal and monetary response to the COVID shock, right? I'd say even more so than monetary, the fiscal response was just massive, right? And, and so it's, it's led to this bust-boom cycle in the U.S., right, where core inflation surged, and that led to a very aggressive Federal Reserve response. So you have the, you've had this amplified cycle because of the fiscal policies of two years ago that are somewhat unique to the U.S., right? We didn't see a similar response, uh, or at least to the magnitude, in most other parts of the world. So that's, that's, that's one contributor. The other is um, COVID accelerated the technology store. I mean, as we were all working from home or remotely or in, in all contexts uh, of our society, not just business, uh, that led to an increase or an acceleration in demand for technology products. Both of these really served, again, the U.S. well and hence support of the dollar. Uh, on the other side, you've had two specific shocks, uh, notably in the past year that have undermined growth elsewhere. The energy shock in Europe right, related to the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, that's been a significant adjustment for the European economies. 
And in China's case, it's been mostly self-inflicted through overly conservative COVID policies and very restrictive uh, property sector policies. Uh, I think those, again, those in combination have led to this surge in the dollar until the fall of last year. And what shifted in the fall of last year? I think a couple of things have shifted. Right? I think I think one on the U.S. side, I, I'd say it's been more that the inflation surge in the U.S. you know uh, is has been peaking, right? Has been decelerating. Sequential inflation in the U.S. is slowing quite markedly, uh, and I think there's a sense that that the Fed is is close to peak uh, rates uh, in the U.S., whereas there was a lot of angst last year that the Fed could be hiking quite a bit more. So I think that's been one source of of, uh, of relief, rather, and, and, and it's like led to some dollar weakness in the U.S. side. Accompanied with that has been the tentative signs of weakness in the technology sector. And if you think about where the profit warnings come from, where are the layoff you know, signals coming from, it's specifically from that sector. I'm not saying it's large enough yet to be alarming, but it is worth noting. Uh, and meanwhile, in Europe, the energy story is quite a bit better, right? Some of that's been luck. You've had a warmer winter, uh, and that's reduced the need for you know energy supplies. Uh, but but it's it matters because it allows Europe, to, you know, it buys them time to develop longer term solutions and alternatives to to Russian sources. Uh, and China, of course, has done a full 180 on COVID policies, right? So now you're seeing quite a bit of an acceleration in Chinese growth as well. And just any additional comments forward looking about Europe and China? Clearly, there's many currencies we could talk about relative to the US dollar, but those seem like the big areas of interest. Yeah, I think Europe's really the most significant change here. And I, and I, and I don't think there's a consensus view on this at the moment, but I would really underline that the primary headwind to Europe, which was this sovereign crisis, and it lasted a long time. I mean, it took really just about a decade for Europe to make the necessary adjustments. It's done, it's happened. Yes, you can always point to certain things that are not quite there yet. I mean, the main objection would be that, that Europe, you know, never had a full fiscal union while it did have a monetary union. And that's a disconnect that's been a negative for the region. But they've taken all kinds of steps to address that. Some of that's through the central bank, which is facilitating uh, a certain type of fiscal union. You've seen a series of policies, you know, from, from the euro area, really thinking about the region as a whole, not just at the individual country level. And if you look at some of the, the adjustments at intra-country, they're, they're quite significant. I mean, in the 2000s, you had seen a very significant acceleration in wages in Spain, France, Italy, vis-a-vis -vis Germany. So they've become far less competitive. That is largely reversed at this stage. Uh, Italy. Italy was a big borrower from the rest of the world uh, a decade ago. They were in a very large net investment deficit. Uh, they're now running a net investment surplus. So you've seen, you know, over the course of time, some significant adjustments that puts Europe in a much better place. And perhaps one of the most, I think, notable ways one can see this in the data today is the strength of their labor market. The unemployment rate is at record lows. Now, admittedly, it's low in the U.S. as well. But in Europe, the labor force participation rate is at record highs, which you can't say in the U.S. So you have a very broad-based, you know, uh, strong labor market uh, in Europe, I think, supporting the economy. Interesting. And China, obviously, a very different story 
doesn't feel like very long ago that there were a lot of conversations about when the Chinese economy would overtake the U.S. economy, how to measure that, would the Chinese renminbi become the reserve currency of choice? And how do you think about that conversation having shifted over the last couple of years? Yeah, so China is a little bit more of a complicated story. I, I think it's more at the moment a cyclical story than a structural story. Uh, Xi Jinping for the last several years has been focused on consolidating his power, has been focused on, on issues that are not about maximizing growth. Right? It's been about reducing financial risks, dealing with geopolitical uh, issues, becoming more self-sufficient, uh, addressing excesses in the property sector, distributional issues within, within the populace, those sorts of things. And I don't think those concerns have gone away. I think they're still, you know, st still something he's focused on, but at least cyclically, uh, uh, it looks like their emphasis on growth has changed. Uh, I think that's going to offer some support to, uh, to the Chinese activity. I think the more structural changes in Europe, and I think quite possibly in one of China's I think growing competitors, its neighboring country in. I, I, one comment you made about U.S. oil exports being transformative has me thinking about commodities and currency markets in general. We've we've spent a lot of time with the U Ukraine um, conflict talking about supply. How does supply and demand of commodities impact currencies right now? I think this is a really critical question to consider. Uh, most of the commentary, as you suggest. You know, his around commodities is driven by supply concerns, right? That that uh, there's been disinvestment or lack of investment in the commodity sectors for quite a few uh, years uh, at this point, and and because of that lack of supply, there's upward price pressure. Uh, some of that has been amplified by concerns about uh, climate change, right? That's discouraging investments in fossil fuels. Um, uh, at a time when we still don't have quite enough of alternative energy sources to fill the gap. So, so it's been mostly a supply side concern, again, amplified by the Russia-Ukraine uh, situation. Uh, I, I think the interesting story going forward might be though that there is another demand source. And this is still early days yet, but I think there are finally some signs that India uh, has taken uh, some very significant steps in improving its infrastructure, uh, increasing public investment spending um, to allow for India to become more of a manufacturing hub, not just a service hub uh, for the global uh, economy. Again, I say this is early. I don't think there's a definitive answer here, uh, but for the first time we have a viable option other than China in what might drive commodity demand. Seems like we've talked about a lot of headwinds um, for the U.S. dollar. Are, are there acute risks or triggers in the near term that could really cause some further depreciation of the greenback? Uh, well, Katie, before I go there, I, I do want to uh, uh, address one additional uh, point about the forward-looking view on the dollar, and that is that that of the different growth drivers of the dollar, right? I think we've touched on most of them, but one in particular on the, the technology side, I do want to underline, I think that one is likely reversing. I think we're at a stage here where technology investment is overshot longer term trends. I think there's some overinvestment and overconsumption of technology that's occurred. And I think that's, we're on the cusp of that reversing here. Um, and, and there's some evidence that this is beginning to show up in the data. So if you look at 
business surveys in the United States, compare them to business surveys elsewhere, uh, you've seen a reversal, uh, the likes of which we have not experienced really since the 2000s and during that dollar bear market phase. To your point though, are there nearer term factors that could sustain dollar shift? I think there are. I mean, I think this view that, that I'm expressing is a multi-year view on the dollar, that it will decline over the next few years. Uh, but over 2023, there are some cross currents worth noting. Uh, the Federal Reserve uh, uh, has rates you know, closing in on 5%. That's very high in absolute and relative terms. You still get a lot more yield to park your uh, money in the United States than you do in most other developed countries. Uh, so, and, and the Fed has not indicated its intention to reverse that policy anytime soon. So I think that could still support the, uh, the dollar. And, and by the way, that's, that's concurrent with the Fed's quantitative tightening policies, right? They are withdrawing dollar supply from the market. So I think that is still a, a, a somewhat of a tailwind uh, for the dollar cyclically. We also haven't fully resolved the debate whether this is going to be a soft or hard landing to the extent that the Fed overstayed its welcome at these high rates and we head into a hard landing. Uh, one can imagine a world in the second half in particular where there is a flight to safety uh, that, again, supports some further dollar strength. So I think it's possible that we spend a better part of this year with the dollar in some type of a topping uh, pattern uh, before a more sustained decline unfolds over the next uh, over the next several years. But I don't want this to distract though, really from the more, I think, fundamental and enduring point here, which is that the factors that drove the dollar up over the last decade are reversing. Uh, and we're much more likely to see a multi-year dollar decline from here. Thank you very much, Anajit Sareen, for sharing your views on the US dollar and its path forward as part of today's Brandywine Global Conversation Around the Curve. Thanks, Katie.